SCP-7005 The Neon God The multiverse theory, or parallel universes, is an extremely interesting one that has been covered countless times in science fiction before. The idea that for every single decision or outcome possible in a timeline that a branching timeline or universe is made is dizzying in its implications and possibilities. Suppose that you were able to travel to different universes and encounter different versions of yourself. There's no doubt that the results would weigh heavily on one's mind, seeing how different your life could turn out had certain decisions been made or things occurred differently, for better or worse. The SCP Foundation has its fair share of multiversal SCPs, but SCP-7005 perhaps delves deeper than any of them into this concept of life, randomness, unfairness, and identity. Let's begin. SCP-7005 begins with a letter written by a Dr. Rosie Hartlepool. It reads, The day we buried my sister, it was sunny. It was scorching. It was a little cemetery in the city, a scrap of dried-out grass, yellow and burnt. When I think back on it, it doesn't feel like home, but I suppose it must have, then. I'd never known anything else. I didn't cry. I don't remember much, but I remember that. The shock was too deep. I couldn't understand what had happened to her. I stood there, between my parents, my mother veiled and my father racked and sobbing. I was only eight. She'd just been smiling up at me. The day wasn't anything. It meant nothing. It didn't feel like any funerals I'd seen on TV, those sealed markers of endings. It was just a day, while the grasshoppers hummed and the wind blew through the stalks. She wasn't gone. She was right there, in that box. There was no story to be told except that of the gravedigger's earth, rhythmically drumming on the coffin. When we left, to our new house in the country, we took the train. My parents tried to talk all afternoon, but I didn't need them to. The wheels slipped across the tracks, embedded in the grass and wire, with the greenery outside flowering further and further. And I felt happy. Now I could see it. The escape. The recreation. The play of the clouds. The wind in the air. The apples of the autumn. I write this on the last line back to normalcy only to find that the O5 Council has gone insane. They are burning the Foundation from the inside out. Kells is probably drunk on the floor, cursing himself and everyone around him. And the Neon God prays at my periphery, almost seen, almost there, but always towering above all else. Nobody will read these words I write. But oh, my dearest friends, you don't have to. The words will stand regardless. 
That brings us into the actual documentation for SCP-7005, which is given the object class of Thaumiel, meaning that it assists in the Foundation's goal in some way or form. It's described as a multi-dimensional transport network, commonly known as Lampeter. It consists of a number of conventional forms of transport, including trains, automobiles, planes, hot air balloons, and the Mongol Yam system, which have been anomalously altered to move between different timelines, universes, and realities. It also contains a number of pocket universes, specially designed to serve as intersections and transport hubs. It plays a critical role in interdimensional communication and transport for both the Foundation and the anomalous underground at large. Its full extent, both in this universe and others, comprises over 4,000 known universes, with many more suspected to exist. Twelve departure points are known to exist in our universe, but many more are known from anecdotal evidence. Some of the departure points include a small wooden door in the back of a church in Tuscany, which leads to an underground tram station that takes the traveler to a larger tram hub in universe B723, Hospice. Another is an abandoned and cordoned off jetty in northern Hokkaido, which takes the traveler to a large seaport in timeline Q944, Mintucci. A lost and found office in a train station in Peru connects to a large train station in Universe H020, Great Inca State, while the back entrance of an old inn in Iran connects to a nesting series of similar inns which are all located in ten separate timelines simultaneously. A patch of sky above northern Mongolia causes aircraft passing through it to be taken to an intra-universal airport which services at least 350 universes in what the network's station masters commonly call the Far Southwestern Corridor. SCP-7005 was first founded in the 13th century in a presently undiscovered universe, Universe Z-999, Halogen, by members of the Lampeter family for an unknown purpose. Later, it was run by the Lampeter Non-Euclidean Shipping Company, or Elnesk, from the early 17th century until 2021, when the company went bankrupt. Since then, the Foundation has stepped in to administrate the network in order to prevent a complete collapse in the trans-dimensional communication networks and the numerous Z-class scenarios this would precipitate. The Foundation currently only controls 832 distinct stations, and important routes on the broader network continue to be maintained by groups of volunteers, small-scale private enterprises, and agreements between multi-dimensional warlords. Full Foundation control was originally expected to be complete in 2035, then changed to 2050, and now set for 2070. Speaking on the immensity of the network, we're given a note written by Dr. Simon Kells, one of the heads alongside Dr. Harderpool of the newly founded Department of Interdimensional Logistics. It reads, The sheer scale of SCP-7005 is difficult to describe. Every time we find another gateway, another door in a train station or portal hidden in a marsh, I keep thinking about those first Lampeters and what they must have achieved. 
The amount of power it takes just to send messages from one universe is immense. It requires an anomalous power source capable of routing staggering outputs into extra-physical realms. We've all read the Scranton account of the place between realities. Now imagine trying to find the parameters of that nothing place, that limbo. Trying to define the undefinable. As far as we can tell, no new universes have been added to this network in some time. The technology seems to have been lost decades, maybe centuries ago. We haven't got the slightest idea how it was done. The Lampeter records were lost in the final years of the Elnesk's existence. Some station masters have spoken of great images and murals detailing the technique, but we've found no trace of them. Maybe one day we'll find the fabled Z-999. Maybe there'll be an answer to this question. Who was mad enough, daring enough, to punch that first hole between universes? What kind of brain is able to work through these endless, anomalous problems of physics and reality? We have no idea what kind of twist in the head is necessary to see the world in the right way. The physical space Lampeter holds is immense, yet negligible. It's a network known only to those in the know. It's stations hidden in the most remote places or the most unassuming. Its very existence is an enormous technical feat. I like to picture it, a network of stations and resting posts stitching together different lines and threads, existing on an entirely separate axis of being to the ones we know. But that's not it, at all, when you look at it. It's just sheds and warehouses, a cascade of back rooms, a lot of very, very tired employees, and an interminable decay. We're next given an interview between Dr. Hartlepool and M. Rameau, an SCP-7005 employee in Universe G-2999, Fair Tombs. This was conducted as part of Hartlepool's attempts to gain a greater understanding of the history and nature of 7005, due to the loss of the vast bulk of the Elnesk's archival records. The interview was conducted in a small mountainside cabin during a heavy snowfall. Hartlepool had hiked out to the cabin herself and went in to find Rameau sitting at a table with a headset on. The cabin also contains a bed, several paintings of cherry blossoms, and a kitchen area with a kettle and hob. Rameau doesn't notice her come in, instead speaking to someone through the headset about some transport logistics. Harderpool startles him, but he ends the call and says that he wasn't expecting any visitors. He gestures to the table and begins to make two cups of tea. He says that when you live in a small wooden hut, hundreds of miles up the side of a mountain, you don't often expect visitors. Hartlepool asks him if Lampeter ever considered moving him somewhere more reachable that didn't require a ludicrous amount of power and precision to jump to. Rameau says that it didn't used to when this place was inhabited. That was centuries ago, though, and this is now a tomb world. Hartlepool says that she's passed through at least three tomb worlds on the way to get here, 
He then asks if she considered just taking the ski lift over there, to which she hesitates and says that there are protocols. This is technically classed by the Foundation as newly reclaimed, and if she does it, it looks bad for the whole department. Rameau laughs and says that he's not offended, but the line is safe. Hartlepool, however, says that that's not the way she hears it, with seven missing in this quadrant alone. Rameau counters that none of them are at this station, and he runs a tight ship here. Hartlepool then asks why doesn't everyone else? Rameau returns to the table with two mugs of tea, placing one in front of her and sitting down, looking intently at her. He then says that she never saw this place in the good old days, to which she asks if he did. She says that the Lampeter lines have been here for centuries, so their golden age must have ended long before the company fell into disrepute, mentioning a rumor that the last member of the family burned himself alive. Rameau admits that he never saw it in its glory days either, but he's heard about it, as they all have. The stories down the line, passed on by passengers and station masters. A little stop like this would have had three or four employees at all times, with constant maintenance. Hundreds of lifts running up and down the cables every hour, dozens upon dozens passing through. Whoever the early Lampeters were, smashing holes in reality, they must have had big ambitions, and a lot of capital behind them. Rameau says that the Foundation did a good thing, stepping in as they did, but it's getting harder. One of the cables snapped last month, and they were out of action for a week. The Elnesk wasn't much better towards the end, but it's cold up here, and shifts are extended. He lives here half the year now, barely getting home at all. Things are straining, and the network can't go on like this. A whole chunk of the line is being routed through here, a ski lift station, and they don't have the manpower for something like that. The only reason they have stations like this is because the holes had to be here or something. Harderpool takes notice at this, asking about the holes having to be here. Rameau doesn't know, though, saying that it's just old station lore about there being something to the locations they chose. They were weak points or something, places where it was easier to build. The two sit in silence for a moment, drinking their tea, before Rameau asks her why she's here. She simply says that she got curious and thought that she'd ask around and talk to some of the old hands from the Elnesk. With the archives gone, she has to start somewhere, so she just wanted to see it all for herself. Rameau gets it, and says that Lampeter is important. It binds things together, all of reality. She asks if it needed binding, though, to which he responds that yes, it does, because how else will they find God? Hartlepool laughs, and asks him if he thinks that this is all to find God. Rameau says that he doesn't know what it's for, but it's the only way to do it. It doesn't have to be God exactly, but there's nothing else beyond this. Every possibility contained in every universe stretching on to eternity, and if anything can find a hidden unity, it's Lampeter, 
Hartlepool wonders, however, if there are multiverses beyond this one, mentioning that it's something her colleague, Dr. Kells, was talking about. She doesn't agree that all of reality should be bound together, though, as there wouldn't be anywhere left to go if things got weird for all of reality. She gets up and looks out the window, asking him if he knows what happened to the archives. Rameau says that old station lore says that John Lampeter, the last of the family, went mad after finding something somewhere deep in the east of the line. She remarks that there are no compass points in the multiverse, but he says that it's just easier to think of it that way. All of the area that the Foundation controls is considered to be the west. Then there's the center, which is full of interchanges and half-abandoned stations. That's now a broken network that was once Lampeter's crowning glory. Then there's the east, and nobody knows what goes on there. When asked why, though, he just shrugs, saying that he's been working this part of the line his whole career, and doesn't get a lot of time to talk to the passengers. Regardless, they say that John Lampeter found something out there that drove him mad, and he burned the Lampeter archives to the ground, possibly himself with it. While looking out the window, she sees a small light through the snow, coming from the base of the mountain. Asking Rameau about it, he says that this was a tomb world, and the retrenched priests of the Flaming Heart believed in the glory of decay itself. Each one of their tombs burns eternally, keeping each corpse in a constant state of destruction. Ashes fall off continually, transforming into fuel as they float to the ground. The body is never destroyed, but it's always losing more of itself. Hartlepool says that they have 7,000 anomalies currently listed in the Foundation database, and yet barely 10 universes away, the laws of entropy are suspended, and thousands of tombs litter the surface of an alien world. She returns to her seat, staring into her mug, and says that Rameau is also a creature of decay, as all of the station masters seem to be. Rameau says that he was born the son of a Foundation researcher, and grew up to join the Serpent's Hand. When he was thirty, he stumbled across a Foundation file that told the story of how Matthew Rumsfeld fell through time as a teenager, changed his name to Rameau, and lived a broken and unhappy life in a distant past. He grew old and died. He's referencing SCP-6799, which involves a Foundation researcher sending his young son back in time to the 13th century. Rameau is the Matthew Rumsfeld of a different universe, and took his name as a reminder that if he wasn't here, he'd be there, or somewhere else entirely. Here, though, on the boundary between possibilities, maybe he really can find God. Hartlepool hopes that he does, and begins to head for the door. Rameau stops her and writes something on a piece of paper. He says that if she really wants to know what's out there, she should try this guy in Universe F-433. He used to work in the East, apparently, so he might know something more. She leaves, 
looking back once more to see Rameau putting his headset back on. We're next provided a personal log recovered from a train station in Universe L-453, Harold's Hole, a universe located in the center of the Lampeter network. It's believed that this log was composed 300 years ago, and reads... Today we logged 456 refugees from the east. That is over 12% of all the traffic through this station. We are a small station, to be sure, but the numbers of those who run is staggering to me. They wear whatever they had, whatever they could take, and rely on the mercy of the station masters to keep them in food, water, clothing. We did our part gave them what scattered rags we had, whatever other passengers gave to us. I wonder, sometimes, at the High One's plans. Our Scarlet King is a kind and merciful god, to be sure, but why do so many pass through here? They come in so many different forms. There are the rich, or once rich, wandering in ragged suits and golden coats, There are the poor, faces iron-clad against the deprivations they have seen. There are children, some who think this is all a game, some who understand that their homes are gone forever. There is such variety that all I have said seems cheap, just petty categories that even I don't understand. There is as much suffering as this in the terrestrial realm, but not so spread out. All possibilities now collide into one another, and still there is something we must flee from. We have heard what dwells in the east, what spreads its tendrils to place to place. I cannot quite believe it, but the evidence is reflected in every passing iris, every haggard eye. I was raised, as all the ghoul are, in the far desert, and the sands under the black sky. Our only dwellings are collections of tents and the occasional shelter shrine erected by the long dead who came before. I never knew of the city until I came here. It is like the desert in its own way. There's a purity to it, a rejection of all that is wild, despite the wildness within. In its desire for conglomeration, it creates its own wilderness. I have heard tell of other worlds, where our king is not the benevolent red-crowned sky, but a vicious creature of spite and envy, an idea born of the crushing weight of suffering. It is hard for me to believe. And yet, I will still make the offerings of stone and cobalt, in the hopes that our king hears us. When I see the suffering, I will remember well the luck he has bestowed upon me. And one day, I trust, all the realms will be united, and the east will be free again. One day, I hope, we will feast together in his halls, the rich and poor alike. We're then given another document, this one recovered in the ruins of the Lampeter archives. 
It's one of only a handful of documents that was not destroyed at the end of the Elnesk's existence, and it reads, The city shines. I see it from my window. It is within my window. It has taken most of the bedroom now. Only the bed remains. I don't know why I can see it and the others can't. It's so obvious. There is the city, and there's the rest of the floor. Then there's me. The city shines against the night, and it's beautiful. I used to hate it, like the others did, but now I love it. They move through it slowly, still trying to find spaces in it, hoping to get out, get away in the car, but they never find them. They'll learn to love it too. They'll have to. Its sprawl extends outwards, gradually caressing all it touches. They rise, the steel and glass, twisting upwards like strange plants over what was the Mojave, crushing the cacti, burying roots into the sand. Does physics allow the Earth's molten crust to be converted into condominiums? Will the lights go out as we fall into the sun? But that doesn't matter either, because then the sun will become part of it. I have not yet been taken, but I want to be. I bear my heart. I give it my skin. The city aches, cradling its way across the world, its slithering trains creating new jobs where once there was only farmland. The concrete slips and slides, plain and mixers, splattering across the valleys, the Welsh hills becoming slag heaps again, the Kazakh steppe absorbed into a greater Almaty, into a greater Novosibirsk, into a greater Beijing. I love the city. I love it all. I love its alleyways and its theaters, blaring white light into their moaning and shrieking faces. I love the pristine slums, scrubbed to the bone like any self-respecting city should have. I love its ancient monuments, destroyed and cast again in metal, to be destroyed again and recontextualized in the future. I love it all. And most of all, I love the lights. I love those lamps on the tops of the buildings where mountains used to be, where tombs used to be. I love their colors, flickering. Red, green, yellow. The grass looks lovely, splayed in yellow. I want to be in it. I give myself to you, O city. I want to be one of them. A neon light blaring outwards, outwards, outwards forever. Let me light the world. Let me show them how it's done. This seems to be describing some sort of phenomenon that turned a version of Earth into a massive city, with most people seeming to try to flee the conversion, but some learning to love it. The previous document had mentioned a bunch of refugees fleeing something, and how there is something dwelling in the east that is spreading its tendrils. Curiously, the station master that wrote the previous document mentioned how the city is like the desert, in its own way, with a purity to it. 
we're going to soon learn a lot more about what's going on in the east of the multiverse. Dr. Hurdlepool went and spoke with Titus Quaker, a station master in Universe M433, The Hollow. The meeting takes place in a tall building, the walls and floors of which are all made of glass, allowing her to view the entire structure. It's several hundred meters tall, divided into a number of square rooms with no visible furniture or inhabitants. Outside, a huge volcano is visible, with the building apparently constructed on the edge of the caldera. A number of metal platforms can be seen jutting over the caldera's edge, upon which a large number of hot air balloons are visible. These balloons appear to be both ascending to and descending from the clouds above, and on the platforms, a complex series of passenger exchanges are taking place. Hartlepool reaches the top floor of the building, finding an elderly man on the other side of the room, dressed in black and holding a silver cane. She goes to introduce herself, but the man already knows her name, causing her to sigh. She tells him that she works for the Foundation, and has had it up to here with cryptic responses from interview subjects, so he doesn't have any tricks or powers that she hasn't seen a hundred times before. The man turns and smiles at her, before apologizing and inviting her to look out the window at the balloons. He says that it was apparently the only way it would work, as if they built this next to the volcano. According to ancient Station Master lore, the balloons were also necessary for the transport network to work. Hartlepool tells him that she was sent here by Rameau, who Quaker remembers from meeting him briefly at some function or other in the dying days of Elnesk. He refers to him as a good chap, but a bit isolated. Hartlepool remarks that he's in a glass building the size of a skyscraper with nobody else in it but Quaker says that he gets in a balloon at the end of the day and returns home to his family. He suggests that she should try it sometime, but she responds that she doesn't have a family. He tells her to get a new one then, as there are a lot of them out there, some that are the same as her original one, but missing a rosy Hartlepool. She asks if that's what he did, but he says no, as he doesn't go in for that sort of depravity. She asks what he means, to which he says that he was born in a world that snowed all the time. The snow, however, changed things. You'd wake up and people you'd known your whole life had never been born, with every possibility altering, changing, and shattering around you. Eventually, the entire timeline disappeared, destroyed by its own contradictions. It's no way to live, moving between the possibilities of life seeking to hop between timelines to satisfy your longing to fix past mistakes. He says that we all have our paths, and we should stick to them. She says that she has no plans to find copies of anyone in her family, but she'll keep that in mind. He tells her to not be so flippant, as the possibilities out here are endless. You can move from poverty to unimaginable wealth because your pocket lint is worth more than anything to some half-baked reality off the eastern arm. You can lose yourself in the pleasure after pleasure and the mirrors beyond mirrors. 
She understands the temptation, but it doesn't bring them back, to which he agrees. He then says that she wants to know about his time in the East, because why else would she come here to the middle of nowhere? This was once a bustling building until decay got to it, and Elnesk folded. She wants to know what John Lampeter found in the East, but Quaker says that what he found is what any Easterner or even anyone from the center could tell her that lives there. What he found was the Neon God. The Neon God is what you get when you mess around too much with the fabric of reality. He explains that there was a universe far from here that had an Earth like so many of the universes do. There was a village on this Earth in the Argentine called Periant. One day, one of the houses in this village started to grow, with new rooms growing onto it. One room appeared, then another, extending and expanding, moving from house to house. No two were quite the same, but it kept with the village's aesthetic, at first, until they started becoming more generic, with concrete, glass, and metal. The village kept expanding, and it kept on expanding, forever. It took decades to cover South America, and decades more to cover the whole Earth. A single metropolis, expanding onwards and onwards, high-rise after high-rise, eating everything in its path. The people in it became manic, stopping eating, drinking, doing anything. But after the world became an entire connected city, they just stopped and broke down. They wept and beat their fists, and then they stopped and stared up at the stars. Quaker says that the East is broken now, just little islands of civilization between worlds that have become the Neon God. The first one was millennia ago, but they only know what happened because of archaeologists who went back and visited dead world after dead world. They never dared step into the original universe, but now there are hundreds, maybe thousands of universes that have been taken over. People have tried everything to stop it, but nothing works, including blowing up whole planets to stem the tide. It's still going on, but the foundation of our universe has never heard of it because refugees don't often make it all the way to the west, and Lampeter is vast and ill-managed. The Neon God is just another piece of lore, long forgotten, just one tale out of a hundred that comes from far-off lands. The further east you go, however, the further it becomes a reality. Hartlepool clarifies that there's some kind of virus turning planets into cities, and the trains take the survivors away. It consumes the planets and leaves the people as gibbering idiots on the floor, with thousands of universes having succumbed and no way to stop it. Quaker says that maybe it can be stopped, as he just runs this station. He tells her to go and try to stop it, as maybe she'll be the hero, but he'll keep the station running to keep allowing whole lives to be lived when otherwise they would be stopped by the Neon Plague or by something else. 
She asks him how he could not have told them about the Neon God, but he just says that he's done his part and his conscience is clear. Hartlepool stares at him for several moments before turning and walking away. Afterwards, Director Kells puts out a report on the Neon God, which reads... We were not completely ignorant of this neon god that Quaker described. We'd heard stories, especially from those with knowledge of the multiversal East, as we're provisionally calling it. Stories about cities that take over the world, mock cities that imitate the real ways people live, build, develop communities. A nightmare city, a shadow of reality. That's the thing about cities. They're essentially conglomerations of people stuck together. The first cities were formed because farming allowed people to specialize. Instead of spending all your time searching for enough food to get you through the day, a smaller subset of the tribe could provide food for everyone. So that meant some people were free to do other things, like build, trade, pray, and so on. Conquer, rule, become a living god. A lot of these things needed to be done in specific places, with other people. So, cities were formed. People coming together. It's a simple matter of cause and effect, in a way. One thing happens, so another thing happens. But, in all the stories we've heard, in all the texts and legends, the same thing kept coming through. The city just... appears... It starts growing. It's not a real city, a human thing that makes sense according to how individuals live their lives. It's just there. The same symbols of our reality replicated over and over, constantly. I grew up in London. Huge city, a vast metropolis. The original city was a little thing, clinging onto the banks of the Thames, a rival to nearby Westminster. Then, different settlements merged together into something larger than themselves. But they were never entirely pulped out. There are still old remains, walls, bits and pieces, the boundaries of neighborhoods. This city has none of that. It's a grotesque parody, transforming itself over and over again, like it's trying to become a real city, but doesn't know how. Or maybe it's just a glitch in some system we can't see. It'll be thousands of years, probably, before it reaches us, but it's still a threat. We are the foundation, after all. We'll have to find some way to contain it. That's what we do. That's what our purpose is and we're being given a shoestring budget to do it. It's hardly the first time the Foundation has contemplated some sort of multiversal threat looming on the horizon, but it sounds like their work will be cut out for them. If civilizations that could just blow up planets couldn't stop it, it's hard to say what would. We're next given a poem written by a Jean-Antoine Delacroix, that Hartlepool discovered while traveling into the multiversal center. It reads, In circles comes the muddied mind that hurtles round the railway lines. 
It spins its top across the bow and seeks to answer where to go, but there is nowhere to go. The ash aligns with the steel as it punches through card and paper slicing round. A new world where you're born again, another where you're stuck in mud, in circles come, the paper train screams your name. The neon god has marked your time. Your world is halogen and luck. You in circles bless the mud. Where you are born, where you disgust. Your choice is made a hundred times. The tree branched out across the line. Lampeter stretches in the dark. And in its veins the blackened bark. The neon god is rushing through, its tunnels found, its rain pushed through. In circles all your choices come, the lanterns sway before your tongue, and all the world is steel and glass, now in circles beneath the grass. Later, Dr. Hartlepool had another encounter while in Universe Q865, Grasslands. She's on a large, open step, and in front of her is a stable and a small wooden structure, reminiscent of a 13th century Mongol yam station, a waypoint for messengers in the Mongol Empire. Around the buildings are several large rocks, most of which have weathered carvings on them which are largely unrecognizable. Some appear to have newer, albeit cruder, designs, displaying a series of forking wires and pieces of string. She approaches the building, calling out to see if anyone is there. Suddenly, she hears a voice behind her, saying, They won't come. She turns to find a man in his mid-forties, dressed in fur, sitting by one of the rocks while whittling a stick. He says that they're not there, and they'll be back soon, before inviting her to sit with him. She asks if he's the station master, to which he says, somewhere, probably. She starts to say that she doesn't like cryptic answers, but he finishes her sentence, and says that he didn't think she would, as the Foundation generally doesn't. He introduces himself, but his name is distorted on the audio recording. She introduces herself and asks why he's sitting by a rock in a multiversal yam station, to which he says that it passes the time, and laughs. She asks if he knows anything about the Neon God, to which he says that he does but it doesn't really matter, instead inviting her to play a game of chance. One of them will tell a lie about their past, and the other will tell what actually happened. He says that this is a station between realities, and the fabric of things is different here. The right answer should be easier to guess. As for how it's a game of chance, he explains that everything is happening somewhere, so it's all luck. There are an infinite number of Dr. Hartlepools, and an infinite number of him, with every choice or proto-choice and every branching possibility creating new realities from there. He asks why is she who she is, 
And why does she feel the sensations of this one Dr. Hartlepool? He says that this step exists as part of a cluster of universes, where the Mongol Empire never ended, and the entire world became a dwelling place of nomads. Only a few are connected to Lampeter, but the universes are all there, behind one another. So many steps, so many camps, so many yurts, choices upon choices. But each individual is still a person, whole, unique, made of blood and flesh and bone. And yet each one must exist, because all things exist. She begins to ask why all of them keep trying to, but she's cut off as he says that thinking about this kind of thing passes the time up here. Each universe is so full of narratives and meaning and everything else that all they have to talk about is how weird it is. Hartlepool says that she'll play his games of chance, so he starts by saying that when he was a child, he learned to play the clarinet and asks her what the truth is. She stares at him for a moment before saying that he learned to play the piano. He says that it was the violin, but at least she gets the idea. For her turn, she says that she's been divorced twice. He rubs his chin for a few seconds before saying that it was only once, maybe eight years ago, and she was in a place called San Francisco. She leans back sharply and remarks that porous walls in the universe can do something like that. For his turn, he says that he was born in Idaho, but after some hesitation, she says that he was born in a place like Idaho and would become Idaho, but was called something different. He says that she's a natural, but she wonders if everything is a game of chance What does that imply? She begins to ask what the meaning of life is, but he says that they're not children. The meaning of life is whatever you want it to be. You are who you are because of the luck of the draw. Enjoy yourself and hold on to the good moments while they last. She says that that's only comforting to the people who are experiencing good moments. She met someone who lived on a mountain and thought the entire point of being able to see the multiverse and every possibility was to find God. He responds that if you found God, another set of realities would be formed where you didn't find God. The multiverse isn't the end of the line. Just as every decision in a universe creates a new universe, every decision in a multiverse creates a new multiverse. Once you break the barriers between timelines, it's just a universe on a bigger scale, which means its counterpoint has always existed. Mirrors upon mirrors. He asks what else could there be? As their neon god will cover all of the multiverse, the world will be as one, and then another multiverse will come to mirror it, where the neon god never existed. Back to the game, for her turn she says that her sister is a marine biologist. In response, he tilts his head to the side and says, no, that's not right. The truth is that she left the city on a train when she was a girl. 
This causes Hartlepool to stand up abruptly and begins to look around in a panic. She asks what he means and who he is, but he just says his name again. She says that that's not a name, it's a sound, like film crackling. She asks what is happening and where she is, and begins to back away from him quickly. He continues to whittle his stick, slowly, while staring at her. He says that she's backing away, that's where she is. She's backing away at the same time as she's playing another round, at the same time as this stick runs her through. Hartlepool swears and runs to the stables, mounting a horse and riding away as the man continues to whittle and stare. The idea that another multiverse will be created after the Neon God consumes this one isn't likely to bring much comfort to the Foundation. We're given another report from Director Kells on the situation, which reads, The refugees have started to reach us. Or, maybe, we've just been able to spot them, now we know what we're looking for. Now we know to locate stories of cities in the middle of so much confusion. And once we began, there were so, so many. The anonymous ghoul described them as ironclad against the deprivations they have seen. I'm not so sure. I don't see people who have built defenses, but people who put on masks, trying desperately to seem normal when nothing is. From what we have heard, the people who are infected by the cities become like manic, gibbering idiots. This doesn't seem quite right. It seems everyone is affected differently by them. Some become manic, some begin to despair, others become bright, strange fanatics preaching gospels of urban planning and high-powered development schemes. There's no one reaction to the Neon God. It produces no patterns, no consistency. At least, at first. Eventually, the same thing happens to all of them. At least two dozen were too far gone to be saved. We've placed them in observation. But after a while, when all the rage and desperation was finished, there was nothing left to observe. They lie down on the floor and stare up at the ceiling, eating nothing, needing nothing, feeling nothing, as far as we can tell. It's like there's nothing left to move for, to get up for. Physically, we can find no problems with them. Mentally, they are whole and intact. There's no anomalous effect we can detect, just what we can observe. Silence, bug-eyed and beautiful. People keep trickling away from the research team. We've been working out of two buildings near Site 565, with a burnt-out skeleton crew trying to coordinate hundreds upon hundreds of way stations. It's not working. We need more funds, but the O5s keep diverting them away. What is happening up there? Don't they understand the importance of Lampeter? It's the principal organ of interdimensional travel, our only way of communicating with all that's beyond us. Yet the council seems more and more apathetic. 
barely anyone's bothered reading this page in months. It's just degenerated into Rosie and I writing down notes, interviews, reports. There's nothing systematic here at all. How can I make them understand? I could write reams about SCP-7005. I could use this space to map out the network, describe every scrap of its history we've managed to recover, detail legends from the old lines, the Golem Cascade, the Coriolis Incident, the Lamplight Prophecy. But I don't. I write down my impressions. I write down what seems important in the moment. I don't know what any of us are doing. Very curious that the O5 Council not only seems to be ignoring the entire Lampeter project and the Neon God, but are also diverting funds away from it. We're still no closer to figuring out what exactly the Neon God is, why it does what it does, or how to stop it, but it apparently affects people in different ways until it leaves everyone silent and unmoving. We're next provided a letter that was found on a refugee from the East. Although its authenticity has been established beyond doubt, it's not known how this document fell into their possession, as it's written by John Lampeter himself. It reads, To whomever it concerns, Last night, I dreamed I went home. No Lampeter has been home for centuries. We have told tales of it. We have carved murals into the ceilings of our trains and trams, our ski lifts and saddlebags. They all show the same thing. Grotesque men, the early members of our family, heaving and carving and building things that should not be built. I don't know what that world looked like, but I can guess. It was an Earth world. One of that standard pattern that's so common between our trains. It had a New York, a Tower of London, a red fort with all its guarded ceremony. It had an Isfahan, sacked by the Hotakis like a thousand others. It had green forests and Moroccan lamps, spires and symphonies, iron gates and Wyoming nights. It had all the things I and others have seen so many times before. I've seen cousins of mine settle on such worlds, play-acting what their presence, their past, might have looked like. I've seen them set themselves up as princes over their own fiefdoms. But who was the first Lampeter? Was he a king? A rich man? Or was he a predator? A poor man who saw a way to make himself rich at the expense of his brethren? We all enjoy the fruits of his labor. The lines have made us rich. We are prosperous, respected, loved. Tickets fly through our stations, building up our capital, making us unstoppable. Even the decay, the slow collapse of Lampeter, has not done lasting damage. But I am the final Lampeter, the last one still holding on to our name. And I found something far in the east. 
I found our home. I pinpointed, in a derelict navigation room above a distant star, the exact origins of the Lampeters. Surrounded by skeletons and burnished corpses, I retrieved the last fragment of a half-burnt computer from centuries ago. A thing of bronze and iron carved by the earliest grandchildren of our house. I found our home. And it was the first one, the very first one, to succumb. The mythical universe Z-999 is the birthplace of the Neon God. And doesn't it all make so much sense? I saw images of it. Grainy, pixelated things. Continents covered in blue-gray cladding. I saw in that moment why all of it had come to pass. What the Lampeters were. How they had, in an ignorant desire for power, unleashed hell upon the multiverse. Because that's how it spreads. It must be. It spreads along Lampeter. Our network and the Neon God are inextricably linked, because one is the pathway for the other. We did it. Our hubris. Our desire for connection. For purpose. For more and more and more. For the destruction of countless universes in the name of one single reality. Individuals living whole lives on our line with no connection to land and time. We did this. We wanted a unity of all things, and we got one. A unity buried under a city of the night. The archives of Lampeter sit under a vast blue dome, stuffed with papers, documents, microfilms, hard drives. There is no backup. It exists in the only place it can, a pocket universe outside time and space. I will go there tonight, and I will bring fire. I cannot destroy the line, but I can destroy us. I can destroy all that remains of us. Lampeter will burn bright, as fuel, as a shining light in this multiversal sky. And every world that dies in the dark can rest easy, safe in the knowledge that their vengeance has been sealed. As he said, it certainly makes sense that the Neon God found its start in the same place that the Interdimensional Transport Network did. That represents a problem though, as it sounds like the Foundation might have to take down the entire network to stop it from reaching them. Sometime later, Dr. Hartlepool finds herself in universe Z987, Line's End. It's night, and she's at a train depot, which belonged to the Elnesk before its dissolution. A fairly large bonfire can be seen 20 or 30 meters away, with an indistinct figure wearing a pair of large sunglasses standing behind it. Around Hartlepool are a series of wrecked trains, apparently from multiple different eras of the 20th century. Some of them look unusually weathered, as if they've been gradually affected by varying climate conditions over the course of several centuries. She makes her way closer to the fire, calling out to the individual. 
The man says that he wasn't expecting any visitors, and Hartlepool says that she wasn't really expecting to be here. She asks what this place is, to which he says that this is a depot where old trains go to die when the lines don't need them anymore. He gestures to a carriage and says that this was one of the first, launched from only the fifth universe that the Lampeters discovered. It is timeless and forever. Hartlepool remarks on it being a strange thing, as they have trains like that in her own universe, but none that have grown so old that they look like that. She asks about some carvings that are on it, to which the man explains that they are the Lampeters' own carvings. All of the old ones have them, and they tell the story of the first Lampeters, how they built a device to break through the walls of reality itself. She moves closer to the train and shines a light on it. A set of weathered carvings in the metal of the train can be seen, apparently showing several men and women laying bricks on a huge wall. She asks the man how they did it, but he says that he doesn't know. He's just a minister, and it's not his place to describe the insights of the prophets. She turns back to face him and asks if he means the Lampeters. The man says, of course, as they created the network and allowed the Neon God to enter into everything. Hartlepool begins to slowly edge away from the man as he begins to laugh. He asks if she has not heard of them and their church, the Neon God's servants in these many worlds. She asks if he worships the Neon God, to which the man says that he does, because he understands what it is when so many others don't. Hartlepool says that it seems to be an unstoppable force that turns worlds into cities. The man says that it is much more than that, and invites her to come and sit by the fire. After a moment, she does, telling him that she's got nowhere else to go, and she doesn't even know how to get home at this point. The man asks if she's from the west, and she says that she's from the farthest west, Universe A001, although she thinks they changed the universe's name when the Foundation took over. Apparently the man has never heard of any Foundation, but says that she's always welcome around his fire, which never stops burning. He's been sitting here for a long time, and he's never known it to go out. Harderpool says that that must get annoying in summer, to which the man says that he supposes it must, and smiles. Harderpool asks him, if the Neon God is not a virus, then what is it? The man says that it is their salvation, and asks her if she knows what a city is. She says that it's a conglomeration of people in a particular place, and when people start farming, it allows others to specialize and do other things. Most of these things involve them being in close contact, so the city grows. You can make things, so many more things, in the confines of vast buildings where everyone is concentrated together. The city becomes a focal point for production. The man agrees, and says that the city exists to justify itself. He asks why they make these things, and what's the end goal. Profit would be too easy, and as for the strength of the nation, 
the nation would persist regardless. The city exists for its own sake, propagating itself as a system. The things we do, our reasons for getting up in the morning, they all just fall away. He asks her if she feels that, but she says not for a very long time. He says that she did once, as they all did. That's what cities do. When you realize that there's no point in any of it, the ways that came to be matter less and less and less, until all you're left with is the image of the city. The roads are laid out for a reason, old sheep trails or easy walkways, but these stop mattering. You can't see them. See how the skyscrapers rise and they lose their function in your head. The city becomes something more than a function. It's an image and a thousand ideas circling it. It's alleyways where the poor live and die. It's broadways of thieves and merchants. It gets too big and you can't see the logic anymore. Books describe it, but you can't see it. You know this city is built on a hill or harbor, but when you look up, there's just more of it. Buildings doing arcane jobs you can't understand. Nobody understands. It's just there. It's just more of itself. The man stands up and spreads his arms wide. He calls it all beautiful and says that he used to be a pastor. He would lead flocks in worship of the Lord, but then the neon glare came to him, and he saw that what he thought was reality was just so many lights, so many sounds, and what beautiful lights they are. At this, lights corresponding to a city skyline light up all around the depot. A large series of skyscrapers can be seen, fully illuminated. Hartlepool abruptly gets to her feet, staggering backwards. The man exclaims that this world is one of the neon gods, taken long ago. He removes his sunglasses, and in place of his eyes are two fog lights coated in dried blood, which shine on the ground a short distance from Hartlepool. She moves quickly behind a train, panicked where the light cannot reach her. The man yells that she is one of the neon gods as well, and tells her to go on and find him at the end of the line, so he can show her all he knows. She runs for the entry door to the transport network, a hundred meters to her right. As she does so, other sets of fog lights can be seen, standing behind trains, on top of warehouses, among the wrecks. They appear to be moving at random, but humanoid figures can dimly be made out, which they are attached to in the same manner as the man. Hartlepool reaches the door and swiftly exits as laughter can be heard behind her. Elsewhere, Director Kells speaks with 059 about the situation. 059 asks him if he's doing alright, and asks about his family who apparently the O5s amnesticized and moved somewhere he'll never be able to see again. He says that Kells shouldn't hold that against him, as it had to be done. Kells asks him why, after seven requests in the last month for an increase in funding and manpower, he's now been told that they're slashing his budget by 10%. This is research into the most momentous discovery of their age. 
059 says that his department is not the only one that needs funding. They have dozens, hundreds even, of potentially world-ending threats on the books. Research is an important part of the Foundation, but containment takes priority. He's interrupted, however, by Kells saying that Lampeter contains an infinity of anomalies, all of whom could end them so many times over. It contains examples of how the foundation of other universes have defeated any threat they can think of. In theory, it contains everything. He has given his life to this organization, and they have a tool that can solve all of their problems, but the O5s are just ignoring it. There is a pause for several seconds as O59 stares at Kells, not taking kindly to him being interrupted. Kells asks if he's going to have him killed, and after a few moments' pause, O59 smiles and says no, which Kells probably knew. O59 asks him if he really thought the Council was completely ignorant of the multiverse. Lampeter is not their only route out there and if he could see what the Council can of the Archives, of the hundreds upon thousands of anomalies they've charted, he'd see that Lampeter is nothing. It's just another route out. Kells asks if this is why they're being denied funding, but 059 says that he denies them funding because he just doesn't care. He asks if he knows how many Simon Kells he's seen. There is a Simon Kells who fought with the Devourer and died. A Simon Kells who unleashed an ever-changing blizzard on the world, annihilating timeline upon timeline forever, constantly, creating whole realities that never existed. There's a Simon Kells who spent a century becoming a tyrant, locked in a forever war with an ancient monster, and a Simon Kells who killed himself so that would never happen. There is a Simon Kells who walked through dead earth to see his wife, and a Simon Kells who snapped her neck. He has seen him burn in the half-light of a dying sun to save all humanity. He has seen so much of him, and he's still nothing more than a blip on the radar to him. Kells is taken aback, asking how he can say this, and saying that all of that matters. 059 says that it all has to happen somewhere. Everything does. Lampeter is a mirror for them that shows us that all we are is the luck of the draw. He gives him money. He withdraws it. He goes insane. He maintains his sanity. The agony of choice is no agony at all. He then begins laughing hysterically as Kells gets up and heads for the door. He says that Kells will go back to his office and sit, staring at the screen, waiting for Hartlepool to send him more reports while he's stuck here. She'll send him more and more, and he'll reach for his bottle. Or maybe he won't. Maybe he'll die. Maybe he'll live. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Kells promptly leaves the room. It would seem that 059 and possibly other members of the Council have been afflicted with a specific brand of nihilism in wake of viewing so many different events across the multiverse. It's quite possible, though, that the effects of the Neon God are to blame, which leaves many victims as gibbering idiots. 
The last section of the document is one more report from Dr. Hartlepool, which reads, I write this from the last train out. I write this looking up at those murals carved on the train's ceiling as it blurs through ice, fire, jungle. I look up and think about my sister, about my world before she died. I arrived at last in universe Z999, largely because I didn't know where else to go. I emerged somewhere, the coast of South America, I think, but there the city is even spreading along the water. There won't be much left of the ocean soon. There are no people now, not even the starers. The sun does not come up anymore. The water glistens black, and the corpses of fish rise to the surface, desperate, cloying, the scent of so many bodies washing up from them. I found a train line and headed south. The trains had adverts on them, with no words, only images that could never exist in that world anymore. They changed as I looked at them. I wondered why I was not being affected as the others were, and had no answer to give. The city burnt, the city shone, plumes of fire rose from factories that produced nothing. The cityscape looked like a microchip, strange buildings with no purpose rising and falling again and again. It had dingy alleyways and shining offices, industry and commotion, but no people lived in it. It couldn't figure out what to do with them. I arrived where Periant had been, where it all began, if Titus Quaker is to be believed. I thought at first I was back at the train depot, with great husks of metal surrounding me. It looked like a scrap heap, a graveyard. I didn't know where to look. Then I saw the neon lights. They were scattered around the station, twisted metal tubes glowing and flickering faintly. There were dozens of them. They were hanging from the roofs of buildings, emerging from the tarmac of the roads. They clustered together, following lines, patterns. Skyscrapers littered the air around me, and I followed the lights inward. They were so many colors. Red, blue, purple. But as I got closer and closer to some imagined center, they started to become white. Yellow. Everything looked yellow in that light, that burning light. The streets wound large and small, twisting in unnatural directions. The suburbs were becoming a labyrinth. Finally, we stopped. And there, where it all started, I saw the neon god. A wall, a hundred feet high and fifty feet wide, jutted up from the ground like a shard, a stalagmite of steel. No more sound could be heard, not even the wind, like it was straining to hear something. 
All around, the yellow lights were strewn, scorching patches of cement like a graveyard. The lights were bound to the wall, attached irregularly with metal and wire. They were arranged in rows and columns. I wasn't sure what it was. An attempt at art? A warning? But no. I realized finally that it was meant to be writing. It was meant to be a message. The lights were trying to spell out letters. But they didn't know what letters were, what a sentence was, what a word could mean. It was an uneven scrawl in symbols that did not exist. And all above us, no stars shone. There was nothing left in the center of all that devastation but these things, these yellow and staring lights trying to be something and failing. Now I'm here again, on another train heading out of the city, writing these words. Above me are images of men and women with hammers and chisels, carving out a hole in their universe, striking out into infinity. And it was while looking at this mural that something occurred to me. John Lampeter was wrong. Delacroix was wrong. The first Lampeters did not spread the Neon God through their networks. That wasn't it at all. They were escaping it. Lampeter, SCP-7005, this entire endeavor, these centuries of construction, longing, dreaming. Lampeter, those lonely nights of station masters in ski lifts, volcanoes, stables, wishing wells, whatever else, as they stared up at the sky at stars that once as children they had thought promised infinity. All of them, driven by something more than mere flesh and matter. Lampeter is an escape route. It was built without hope, without design. It was built as an act of crazed desperation in the dark, as the suffering tried to get away, get out, to remove themselves from that neon void that lay behind them. And in doing so, Lampeter has allowed billions upon billions to live their lives. Entire histories, entire civilizations living and falling. Who cares about luck when there is life to be lived? There is no steel and glass here. It doesn't move with the winds. The murals are chiseled, hard and firm into the forms themselves. Whatever luck or chance has influenced their designs and the enormity of all things are irrelevant. The day we buried my sister, it was sunny, and I fled from the city. I took a train out, away from that day, as the sun burnt and the mourners swayed gently, where nothing made sense. I took a train out of the city, and I became Rosie Hartlepool, out among the autumn leaves. The apples I would eat, the auburn sun as it hit the grass. I took my chisels from my sleeping hands and carved murals into the air itself. I carved them into metal and russet red 
and into lines upon lines of train track as I took myself away. And so I stood before the neon in its yellow and blinkered heart and saw it for what it was, not even nothing. So that's it. No big conclusion or results on the Foundation's end, as that isn't really the point of the SCP. All we're left with is a massive multiverse and a virus that's slowly transforming it. I'm going to do something now that I don't normally do, and that's let someone else give an explanation for what this SCP is about. Specifically, the author, Tufto. They wrote... The Neon God is essentially a skip about the search for identity, meaning, and narrative in the face of a reality that, so it appears, is entirely devoid of intrinsic anything. The central narrative follows Rosie as she travels between various points in the multiverse and meets different people trying to create their own forms of narrative, their own stories about what the world is when faced with the infinity of possibilities about who they could be. Any one of them could have been anything. The possibilities of reality are so endless that all the small-scale, everyday things we tell ourselves to make sense of our lives feel arbitrary to them. They need to search for a story to tell themselves about their everyday existence. But as Rosie goes down the line, they get closer and closer to nihilism. Rameau is searching for God for an absolute around which the subjective turns. Quaker, who has seen his reality shift around him constantly, does not believe in any kind of absolute, but simply tries to cling on to arbitrary subjectivities, deeming the possibilities of experiencing different possible lives as depravity. He is very cynical, clinging to subjectivities as if they were certainties while aware of their artificiality. The violinist, meanwhile, has largely given up. He simply exists, out in the wilderness, playing games of chance and tearing down what he sees as the delusion of others because it gives him a kind of petty fun. But the fog-light prophet has turned such an attitude into a religion, seeing the neon god as a negation of everything, the destruction of all meaning. He seeks to bring this to the masses, to convince them to explode their lives, identities, all trace of meaning. Rosie passes through all these as she approaches the end of the line, while Kells gradually sinks to the same point as the Prophet through being stuck at home, trying to cling on to his own certainties. Not even the Foundation, with its supposed viewpoint of rational objectivity, is immune to the problem. A few people have criticized the hammy O5 dialogue, but, while not really intentional, I kinda like that it's come out like that. The O5 is spewing forth a lot of pretentious crap about nothing meaning anything. It's very self-indulgent of him, so he naturally sounds a little hammy, he takes himself very seriously. But the Neon God itself is not a pure nihilistic negation of all attempts to find meaning in things. It appears to be that, but it isn't. The original 2017 Neon God was that. It was my attempt to write a horror story under the write-what-scares-you principle. 
The idea was that the Foundation would do all the usual things to solve the mystery, but it just wouldn't be solved. No meaning, no hint of a meaning was given. It was just slow, inexorable, random, an apocalypse that couldn't be fitted into any narrative, the negation of all things. But that's not really that interesting an idea, and others have done it better. The Neon God is meant to evoke a lot of stuff that's not easily articulable. The strange feeling of being surrounded by systems and architecture that is too big to understand. A huge complex ecosystem that's man-made, but not really controlled or understood by people. All those steel and glass buildings you see in big cities, which seem to exist for the sole purpose of existing without contributing anything tangible to the reality of people's lives, even though they often do. At its core, though, these are all images more than they are meanings. I asked myself this a lot across the various times I've tried to rewrite this over the years. What exactly is the Neon God trying to evoke? Why a city? What could I use this idea of the ever-expanding city to do? Most of my answers just came back to stuff I'd done before. But here, that's the entire point. The Neon City is striving to be something, but it isn't. It's trying to be real. It may not be getting there, it may evoke more than it actually presents a purpose, but it still strives. It can't help itself. And this is the fundamental point of the thing. Narrative and meaning worm their way into everything. The very fact that a slow sink into despair and nihilism can be categorized as a slow sink into despair and nihilism means that it's not really nihilistic. Trying to reject the idea of meaning and identity just creates its own identity and meaning. Even the blank meaninglessness strives towards meaning. It's just shit at it. Rosie realizes at the end that Lampeter is an escape route. Everyone she's met is recontextualized for her. Not individuals waiting out their lives, but people who found a way to escape, or at least deal with in some fashion, the apparent shitty luck and chance of their personal existences. Lampeter is decaying, is dying, but is still an attempt at beating the Neon God, at finding a way to survive that's more whole, more real, actually succeeding in having meaning and identity. Even the Foglight Preacher kind of does this. The Neon God means something different to him than what it actually is. Lampeter has thus allowed generations to live their lives, even as it dies. It cannot defeat despair, but it can keep one step ahead of it enough for people to at least be able to live. And Rosie, too, is able to create identity and meaning for herself. The death of her sister seemed to shatter all the stories she told herself about what life was and how to live, but she was able to find a way out of the despair and create herself as Rosie Hartlepool. She was able to create meaning and identity out of her own experience of life, even as her world appeared to break apart. So, essentially, the Neon God is a skip about searching for or creating identity and meaning in the face of randomness, of unfairness, of the arbitrariness of life, and our opportunities.
Occasionally, I cover SCPs on this channel that are really outside of the norm of what most people think of when they think of this community. SCPs that could stand on their own as philosophical pieces of science fiction or fantasy, with prose that makes you forget you're reading an SCP at all. This is certainly one of them, and even though it may not have much of a conclusive ending, sometimes the journey is far, far more important. <laughs>